Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 13th, 2015, and this is episode 1624 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good friend and a guy that I'm really proud of um, hanging on the line right now. We'll be bringing him on as soon as we start the main part of the show. His name is Michael Vertries. I met Michael about a year before we launched Perma Ethos, and... Uh, we kind of hung out and drank some whiskey one night together, and next thing I knew, he was selected as one of our uh, tenant farmers up in West Virginia. And uh, he did a good job there, but he found a, a, a passion for soils. And uh, since that time, uh, he's done a lot of independent learning, but we've also uh, hooked him up with Elaine Ingham's uh, soil courses, and he's gone through the full uh, full master course with her. It's about a year's worth of work. And uh, he didn't just get through it and graduate. He did it with honors all the way through. And uh, it's really awesome to see a guy take take an opportunity when it was given. And somebody asked him one time, "How did you how did you get in with uh, Jack and the Perma Ethos guys?" And he said, "Jack opened the door a quarter of an inch, and I never left him alone for a day afterwards." Sometimes that's what it takes. It takes determination and drive. Mike's got it. And he's taking all of this information. He's working on developing now a course that you guys can take with him. It's half consulting, half education sort of type of thing. Uh, and one of the ways he puts it is getting your plants off welfare. This is something you can do anywhere. It has a lot of commercial opportunities as well. It has to do with truly understanding soil, soil science, and what real good compost really is and really means for your region. He's going to be on to talk to us about all of that and more in just a bit. Before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing, we want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show, and I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, 
And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of my support brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. And with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1624, because the episode 1624. I have two from Alex Shrug today, the Royal Virginia Colony and the Limits of Cooperation. And I have a Catholic Cardinal for France and for the Protestants. Uh, I'm going to read a Royal Virginia Col the Royal Virginia Colony and Limits of Cooperation. Despite the recent efforts to produce high profits from tobacco crops, it's too little too late for the Virginia Company. Out of more than 6,000 colonists sent to Jamestown and surrounding areas over the years, only 1,200 remain alive. Think about those numbers when you think about survivalism and kind of going out and making it on your own type of thing. And these guys weren't even completely on their own. Just think about that. 6,000 came, 1,200 are alive. And more are walking off the boats to die a few weeks later of malaria. They probably picked it up in an English port before they left, but let's not nitpick. King James I of England has revoked the company's charter for their incompetence. Virginia is now a direct royal colony. The king attempts to disband the legislative body called the House of Burgess, but after four years that effort will fail. The Burgesses have become entirely too powerful. The king knows that labor is the limiting factor for producing crops, New colonists are being encouraged to immigrate to the New World for, quote, the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel, end quote. But with the Indian raids and disease killing off colonists, it's going to be a tall order to make the Virginia colony a success. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these history segments together for us at tspwiki.com. FYI, a Burgess was a representative of the plantation owner. Two were sent from each plantation to form the first legislative body in North America. What do you think about that? The first legislative body in North America was the House Burgess, sort of. Okay, that would be the first legislative body by colonists because the natives did have their own versions of legislative bodies and some quite sophisticated as you move further south. Anyway, but the first that we would think of from, from a standpoint of from settlers coming from uh, Europe. Um, when the king authorized the Burgess to sit as a legislative body once more, they meet separately to form a council. Uh, the council, oh, from the council. The council was granted veto power over the laws of the Burgess passed, but that power was not absolute. The council and the governor were appointed by the Burgesses. The separation of powers forced them to work together carefully 
with each other. In the modern day, the United States legislature hands over powers to the president in order to, quote, get things done, end quote. But even so, it is rarely enough for the administration. When Secretary of State John Kerry was asked why he hadn't submitted the latest Iran deal to the U.S. Senate as a formal treaty, he replied that it was too difficult to get a treaty passed. Indeed, Mr. Kerry is correct. It is very difficult to get a treaty passed. The Founding Fathers knew that any government powerful enough to give you everything you wanted was also powerful enough to take everything you had. So they made sure the government was very inefficient. Thus, only with great need did the legislator cooperate to, quote, get things done, and quote. Right or wrong, if an administration cannot demonstrate a great need for cooperation, how much do we really need it as a country? I think there's a lot to be said for that. You need to look at the way the founders set things up. They actually require in our Constitution not only that this nation be a republic, but every state, whether they call themselves a commonwealth or something else like that, in the end, every state is its indiv is an individual republic within the republic. Now, the states are required to have a republican form of government. That has nothing to do with the Republican Party, by the way. So in other words, the states must mimic the government of the nation. And now there is a place that it's easy to get things done, really, where you don't need a lot of cooperation to get things done. Town councils, local ordinances, and things like that. And that's also an easy place to get things done to make allowances for things that normally aren't allowed. To say, hey, we don't need to have this restriction here. Until the states come in and impose the restriction, or the federal government imposes the restriction. And then the problem is the local government doesn't have the power to override the state or the, the federal government. See, that's, that's the issue. But they should. See, the, 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 the ideal that the founders had was that the federal government could do almost nothing. It could basically act to defend the nation against other hostile nations. And it was to see to commerce between the states. So that was pretty much it. Then the states had their own statute of limitations kind of thing going on. Really, statute is the wrong word there. Their own uh, checks, on, uh, checks on powers by having to emulate the federal government. And thereby, they could only do so much. Even though the Constitution pretty much gave them the free reign to do whatever they wanted, um, that was how they got all the states to sign on. Uh, quite honestly, like you can do whatever you want. But you have to do it the way we do it here. So it's inefficient too. So you really have to sell your people on it to get it done. And the states and the feds have advanced the power. And it makes me think of when I was a young guy. I was talking to my dad about a lot of this stuff. And he said to me, he said, well, what you need to understand is that we're going to become the most totalitarian government in history because we were the most free. I don't understand. He said, whenever you give a government power, it will use whatever power you do give it to create more power for itself. And it will constantly do that. It will, it will become insatiable, like a black hole growing or like a giant star growing. Uh, it will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's no way to prevent it. But the biggest problem with having a truly limited government in the beginning is it will create such prosperity among its people that it will create a giant base for the government to tax. And that government in time, as it begins to grow and consume that tax base, will be able to do things no other government could ever do because it had the ability to take the wealth of the people while the people were free to have the wealth. I thought my dad was crazy 30 years ago. He makes a lot of sense now. My take by Jack Spierko. Remember, Alex Shrugged is one of our leading contributors to TSPWiki.com, but you can contribute too. Not just history is at TSPWiki. All kinds of great things. This is the survival, self-sufficiency, preparedness, 
and Historical Context Wiki. TSPWiki.com works just like Wikipedia. You can be a contributor. And uh, if you don't know, well, I don't know how to edit or do pages in a wiki. Yeah, you can learn in like a couple hours because we have videos and everything for you. Again, the website, TSPWiki.com, a literal encyclopedia of knowledge from self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Check it out today if you haven't done so just yet. Uh, next up, real quick before we uh, get into our interview, let me remind you about the Members Brigade. The Members Support Brigade is how you can support the work we do here. And unlike people that generally say, well, you know, like if you support me, then the show will be around, I, I do say that. But I also want to make it, I want to make what I do always at least a win-win. That's, that's my goal. Uh, that whatever I offer, that the person partaking in it gets a win out of it. When I can make it win, 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 then I know I've got a home run. If I can have three parties winning. So what I've done with the Member Support Brigade, along with a lot of other great content that you get some, some you know, you get to download every single show ever produced in zip files. You get some video content, some PDFs, some eBooks, all kinds of stuff that you can't get anywhere else. You get all that stuff, but you also get discounts from over 60 different vendors. 60 different vendors. And um, those discounts will more than pay for the cost of the MSB if you're buying stuff from guns to garden and anything in between. So that means the people doing the discounting, they get business they wouldn't have otherwise. So the vendors win. I get to do what I love, so I win. And you get discounts, and you can support the show you enjoy, yet you can make it profitable to do so. So you win, too. That's what the MSB is all about. If you want to know more, go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more and sign up today. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is getting your plants off welfare. How the heck are we going to do that? To tell us how we can do all that more, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Mr. Michael Vertries. Hey, Mike, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks, Jack. It's great to be here, man. I'm excited to talk to you today. I'm glad to have you with us today. We're going to talk about soil and soil science and compost and all kinds of great stuff. And as you put it, getting your plants the heck off of welfare. But uh, before we do that, uh, I imagine when you were like 14, you weren't thinking, I'm going to grow up and make compost. You probably had some other ideas in life. So can you tell people kind of how you ended up where you're at today doing what you're doing today? Yeah, well, when I was 14, I had what they call a hard mullet and uh, had dreams of rock stardom. <laughs> my mom wouldn't let me keep my hair long in the front, you know, but she let me grow it out back. So I had to wear that awful haircut instead of just going with it or cutting it off. But I... uh um, so I was basically had all my eggs in the music basket for a long time. Um, almost, uh, I guess I'll, up into my thirties, that was where my focus was. And, uh, you know, I just started thinking, you know, playing in clubs six nights a week in your twenties is pretty cool. But, uh, you know, once you get 30 or so, it starts to feel a little, uh, less, you know, almost pathetic, you know, just to be the old dude and everybody's, you know, in a young man's game, I guess, in the bar. But so I, Decided to grow up and put on my big boy pants, but I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do, so I just hopped in a, a, a big truck. I got the opportunity to go drive uh, semis, and uh, that really uh, gave me a lot of time to think because we're, you know, holding a steering wheel 12, you know, 11, 12 hours a day. So uh, I had the uh, unlimited plan on Verizon, so I was downloading podcasts and listening to all kinds of stuff. I started with the conservative radio, you know, and, and um, Alex Jones and all that stuff, which is where I eventually found your show. And so, you know, one day I got tired of 
feeling like I was developing ulcers and hating everything and being in a panic all the time. So I quit listening to Alex Jones, started focusing on more positive stuff about what to do. And I guess, you know, it led me up to this point where I was uh, trying to work myself into a homestead situation or a farm situation, you know, something like that. Very cool, man. And, and and then you ended up working with with us. You want to tell people kind of how that happened? Yeah, well, um, I, once I decided I wanted to be on a farm, I wanted to be the next Joel Salton or the Tennessee Joel Salton. And uh, it turns out I was really wrong about that. But um, <laughs> So I, I came home and got a bunch of animals and dove in head first and learned mostly – I spent a good long season learning exactly what not to do. I had cows on land that wasn't set up for land. You know, just I hadn't. I don't. I think I did have my PDC, but I was still learning um, how to read the land and do what the land says. You could do cheap, easy, and you know, uh, successfully. So uh, I realized that I wasn't being successful, and I was kind of running out of resources to keep this farm up and running. And that was about the time. Permaetho started looking for tenant farmers, or a tenant farmer who had already selected uh, Jesse. So I kind of just threw the the hell Mary pass. Really, I put the application in and and just kind of crossed my fingers, but went on with my life because I figured, you know, I didn't put a lot of stock in being able to get that uh, opportunity. I was still learning to, you know, try to take advantage of opportunities. But uh, so anyway, Josiah called right before I was going to have to get back in the. Uh, the big truck I you know had to make a choice and so luckily like the day I was going to have to go get back in a truck Josiah called and let me know that uh, you know well I guess back up we had the interviews and then there was nothing for about a week and uh, he uh, called and said hey man you got the gig Uh, when can you be here and (laughs) that's kind of where you know it took off from there can you kind of talk about, you know, while you were on the farm, you you were basically the only thing that kept some of our animals alive, but you, you kind of developed a passion for soils there. What, what was it that kind of steered you that way? Well, I mean, I kind of, I had heard of uh, Dr. Ingham. I didn't know a lot about her. I was, I, uh, Jesse and I were working real hard to uh, get the animal systems in place and, um I kind of had a passion for the composting and soil building, and I didn't really know that there was a lot of real factual scientific information out there besides the the upper-level collegiate textbooks, which nobody can really – it's just a snooze fest, you know. So a lot of what we were doing was um, – or what I was focused on was like what I call the hippie voodoo of it all, where, mm. you know, it might be like the biological – uh, bio, what do they call it, biointensive farming, or um, where they study the moon. I, I forget what they call that. Um, oh, I know what you mean. It's not bio- biodynamic. Biodynamics, yeah. Yeah, the biodynamic stuff where you you know you put cow manure in a bullhorn and bury it for a year, and then <laughs> dig it up the next year, and that's supposed to you know fix a hundred acres or stuff like that. You know, yeah. there was just. You know, we were acting on a lot of imperfect information and hearsay, and and I don't know if that stuff works or you know, but I just I needed uh, if, you know we were making huge amounts of compost on the farm, and I really and really just enjoyed doing that and seeing all this waste become soil right in front of our eyes, and so um, we started hearing about you know 
the, doc, the Dr. Ingham's methods and, and, uh, you know, just I, I really wanted to know more. I didn't want because people are asking questions. And once uh, Jeff Lawton's Soils DVD came out, or part of the his PDC, um, his Soils DVD answered some questions, but it still just left so many questions unanswered. We didn't really know, you know. And and when you talk to anybody about compost, you can almost see the point where they stop um, saying what they know to be true and start saying what they think to be true. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or they even you know that they know, right? Sometimes you can tell it's just like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, all I know is it turns black, and then you put it on plants, and they grow better, and exactly how or why, I don't know. Because, like, let's get into kind of now, like, what's different about the composting that uh, you, you learn from Dr. Ingham. Because when I first kind of heard her from, you know, like a mile-high view, I said, well, in the end, it's add compost and compost tea. And then when I actually sat through one of her lectures and understood the different types of microbes and things in different environments, I started to realize that not only can you make like the best quality stuff, but you can also even fine-tune it when you get to higher levels. Like if you have a strawberry farm, you can build compost for optimizing production of strawberries. So what what makes that possible? Well, it's it's basically just understanding what kind of soil the strawberry wants to live in. Um you know, a lot of people just have – there's a million ways to make compost, and most of them aren't really bad, quote-unquote. You know, there's not a lot of people going to the hospital or dead because they made compost wrong. But you can really um, – using a microscope, you can really focus in and study uh, what what the plant wants and what, what needs to be there. And go be, going beyond that, um, the microbes do a lot of things that we really don't understand yet. And so, like, you know, if your plant needs the minute amount of arsenic on next Thursday at 2 p.m., we're not going to know that to give it to it or nitrogen or, you know, any of the MPK or any micronutrients. So these uh, bio the biology can get down there and do a lot of stuff we think is our responsibility for us and, and much better than we can, excuse me, much better than we can do anyway. So uh, learning what they are, like for instance, weeds love a particular type of soil. So if you don't weed, you know, if you don't want to be weeding your garden all the time, well, let's put the soil conditions so that weeds don't thrive there. And can you kind of um, talk about how it's different than because you know Lawton talks about that, but it's really just like increased fertility, increased fertility, increased fertility. That's you know put more and more compost, keep keep you know running chickens through it or whatever, but. It, it, Dr. Ingham is the only person I've ever heard really get into the the detail, so to speak, of how do we make sure that what we're putting down is actually optimum. Um, I think okay. Um, I'm not sure I understood the question, but basically, yeah. Could you repeat the question for me? Yeah, what I'm what I'm what I'm saying in short, Mike, is like what what actually is done differently with the methods of composting that you're doing. How, how does it work out? How does it play out versus just make a compost because it's not like other methods are bad like you said but they're not optimum they're not the best what makes this different oh it's well it's not leaving anything to the unknown or using the information that we now have which is um with using the microscope taking the the soil samples doing an analysis of what the biology is in the soil uh and correcting that uh like you were talking about uh, just adding fertility. Well, that, you know, to some degree, 
may work, but what you need is is a well-balanced soil because weeds have real shallow roots. They're going to put um, about 20% of their energy into the roots and you know most of the rest of the energy into their seeds to spread the weeds, but they're not really digging down deep into the soil. So if we can get the plants we want to grow uh, down, you know, the roots down deeper in the soil, then they're going to survive the heat of summer and the lack of rain and drought situations and outcompete these weeds. So for, in order for us to do that, we need to have all the millions and billions of microbes. Um, microbes not really an accurate word. I shouldn't use that. But um, the reason I say that is basically microbes is, I guess, a layman's term. Uh, that kind of a catch-all, you know. But uh, so when we get the... Uh, the biology down in the soil, fixing the soil and getting it balanced, then that solves most all of our problems. Gotcha. And what are the benefits that you you derive from this? All right, so the the benefits of using this method, uh, we're working to minimize and hopefully eliminate all pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides uh, by, you know, when the pests and diseases and all this stuff come in, that's nature's uh, trash collector, basically, is one way to think of it. And so um, nature's sending in these pests and taking out what's not going to survive uh, maybe before you even realize that plant's sick or, you know, getting ready to go down. So we get the, uh, the biology right. The biology will actually cover the entire surface of the plant above and below ground, not leaving any infection sites for the pests or diseases to get in there. So we get the pests, you know, get the plant covered up. We're not going to have to worry about pests nearly as much, so we're not going to have to worry about pesticides, natural or otherwise. Um, herbicides, you know, we talked about uh, controlling weeds by getting the soil right and fungicides. That's the same thing. You have healthy biology in the soil. It will always outcompete the uh, parasitic and disease-causing uh, biology. Uh, the good guys are slower growing, but much more um, hardy, whereas the bad guys are always faster growing, you know, but they're not nearly as hardy. So we get the good guys up in population, they're going to maintain the fort force. We're not going to need these crutches to get our plants through. Um, we can also minimize, or minimize and eliminate uh, fertilizers and all the other magic snake oil products you know, that the garden centers sell that promise the world. You know, it's usually just like you say, oh, that's all just marketing. Um, the uh, fertile, you know, the soil has everything it needs in it right now, even the old beat-up corn and soy fields. You may not want to grow anything in there because it's laced in glyphosate, but the mineral, the micronutrients and minerals are there um, as long as there's still dirt under your feet. The plants just aren't able to access them. So if we get the biology back in, the plants are going to be the, the biology will start the nutrient cycle and be able to feed these plants. So we don't need the fertilizers, and the fertilizers are usually almost always going to be salt-based, which is going to be detrimental to the biology in the soil. Which means, of course, you get on that treadmill because you're killing the biology every time you put the fertilizer on. Uh, oh, uh, the nitrogen-fixing plants. That's what I was trying to think of. Um, if you put fertilizer on nitrogen-fixing plants, they don't have any need to fix nitrogen, so they won't. Hmm. So, you know, that's well, I pulled up, um, you know, some clover 
uh, recently, and there weren't any uh, nodules on the roots. It was just acting like a plant. It's just a regular green plant if it's been fertilized because it's you know it has no need to fix the nitrogen in the soil because there's too much nitrogen in the soil. And in fact, it's probably leaching away and getting into the water, most of it. So I think something like 80% of all fertilizer nutrient you pour on the ground um, isn't utilized by the plants or what we want to be. It just ends up washing through. So we can also uh, increase production, or we can reduce the irrigation requirements. That'll happen almost immediately once you get the biology fixed, where you can uh, water your plants uh, 50 to 70% less, and then after you get everything, you've gone through a whole year cycle, you shouldn't ever have to water anything, except maybe in really severe droughts in you know, July and August. You may have to, you know, you're not going to let your plants die on principle, but generally speaking, you should never have to water them. Um, we've got the increased production. There's a uh, you're gonna, you're, when your plants are healthy, obviously they're going to produce way more and much you know healthier, uh, nutritionally dense food. Uh, and it's also going to get when when the plant grows the way it wants to in a naturally balanced system. That's where you're going to get the best flavor for the for the uh, vegetables and fruits you're growing. So there's a lot of benefits to this. Can you talk about the role that the microscope plays here and, like, maybe some of the things that go wrong with people's compost and because they don't use a microscope, they never know? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, the microscope's been um, amazing for me. It's it's actually sparked interest in telescope work, too. But uh, when I use the, the microscope, you can – you can it's there's nothing left to the imagination. You can just see plain as day what's going on in your soil. You can see uh, – once you learn the morphology of the the microbiology, you just as soon as you get it tuned in, you're like, oh, okay, I got, I don't have enough fungi, I, I got too much of the bad stuff, whatever, whatever the case may be, you know what you're working with. So I, I think I forgot the second part of that question. Well, what 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 goes wrong? What why why would somebody end up making compost and then put that on their soil and maybe they don't destroy everything, but they don't have the benefits that they expected? What 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 goes wrong with compost? Oh, well, okay, um, uh, if compost goes anaerobic, you're not going to be growing the kind of biology you want to grow. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be growing mostly uh, human and plant pathogens <laughs> thrive in anaerobic conditions. Um, also, if you let it get too too dry, um, you're basically off-gassing all the nutrients, the, especially the nitrogen Um so if you don't get it and make it in a balance, you may just be putting, uh, you know, rotting organic matter on your garden, which, like you said, it won't probably send you to the hospital, but it's not doing you any favors. And, it, may you know, it, may, time, it, it may in time even actually improve, but you, you've lost a lot in the interim, correct? Yeah, I mean, um, Mark Shepard doesn't use this program, but and he just posted something on Facebook today. It says, hey, look, I've built all this soil. It only took 20 years. <laughs> you know, I don't have 20 years, you know, especially for something new that's affordable, you know, because making compost isn't really expensive. It's just, but, you know, planting trees and waiting 20 years, I, you know, I don't want to be, let's see, I'll be 61, 62 years old before I can post that myself. Hey, I made soil. <laughs> in fact, you describe this uh, type of an education as one of the least expensive investments you can make in permaculture education, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I got that because I took the Jeff Lawton PDC, the $1,000 PDC, and 
there were a lot of things I could do when I came out of there. But, you know, as you learn in permaculture, the first thing you need to do is the earthworks and get all the infrastructure in place. Well, I went and looked around my property, and there were just eight and $10,000 projects laying everywhere that, you know, by that method, I'm like, um, you know, I can't, I can't put all this stuff in the way, between, you know, before I build that pond way back there. You know, I have three or four ponds that need to go in on the property, and I can't plant a bunch of trees between how the equipment's going to get there, you know, and the spot. So, um, and then there was also, uh, you know, you got the ponds, swales, terraces, wells, all this stuff that needs to go in before you really should do anything else. And then it, even once you get that, then at the time, we were looking at it, uh, having to invest thousands in trees and plants. So, you know, I came away from the PDC knowing exactly what I was uh, needed to do, but not being, you know, financially in a position to be able to do a lot of that stuff. So, you know, since then, you know, of course, Nick Ferguson kind of took away that last one for us he, with his plant propagation course. But uh, for this, uh, this is uh, what we're doing here is, is a class slash consultancy. And once you take that class, basically you need a few tools to do the compost. Um, uh, if you, let's see. So you need a few tools to do the compost. Um, a pump sprayer, you can get those at Walmart for 50 bucks. That That's what you'll apply the compost tea with. Um we designed a cheap homemade compost tea brewer that's not, you know, not very expensive. Regular compost tea brewers, we looked at them, I think they were like 1500 bucks to start mm-hmm. and uh, end up. So, you know, I, I, that's another problem. You know, I'm, it's, it's hard to justify a 200-gallon, you know, $2, or $1,500 compost tea brewer if you're working with a, a quarter acre, half acre, even 20 acres, really, because you just don't need it that much. So... Uh, we've got a plans to build a cheap compost brewer that's you know a couple hundred bucks, and then if you go um, all the way with them, you know, get into the microscope and do all that. I mean, the microscope is about three hundred fifty bucks is more than enough microscope to get in there and see what's going on. So you know, that's um, you know. Under a thousand dollars, probably worth of equipment, easily. If you're, you know, on a budget, if you want to go all out and buy everything top shelf, you're probably some, you know, still hovering around a thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think part of this too is from listening to you and understanding what you've, you know, you you've learned now is that in a lot of instances you could go ahead and get the soil under the right management and right control. And a lot of places where you might think you need to be doing earthworks, you, you may not need to be doing earthworks. You, you may need to be get in there and get things balanced and get stuff planted and let the plants take over because, you know, swales were really designed for really arid conditions. And a lot of the United States, they, you know, they get this stuff called rain. I haven't seen any anytime recently, but I think you have. And if you if you get somewhat, you know, Decent rainfall, unless you're using them to fill dams or you just want them in the landform for functional purposes, you can probably do a lot of this stuff without going and bringing in excavators or things like that. Or, you know, you can hire a local farmer with a two-bottom plow to do much smaller earthworks like we did at Permaethos and, and keep costs down, especially if you can balance out the soil. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I was definitely. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think I was clever enough to kind of put this in front of me. But you know, basically, as I got into the soil, I, that's when I learned, hey, I can really get some stuff done on my property without having to spend tens upon tens of you know thousands of dollars, or trying to figure out how to make that money to spend it on pawns and you know different earthworks and stuff like that. Because if you get your soil, your soil absorbs an amazing amount of water if it's soil, if it's balanced, you know, aerated soil with lots of biology, and it can hold so much more water that, you know, you're, it, it's also a solution to uh, erosion, you know. So, yeah. um, you know, it's not, not, you know, so that's one of the benefits I found. I mean, I'm, I still believe in swales, and, you know, I, my... Uh, stepson and I have been deliver, uh, digging swales all this week. We've got, well, micro swales, you know, hand dug micro swales. Um, we've got about a quarter acre behind my garage that we're trying, you know, putting a little micro force in. And, and since swales are a tree planting system, I, I'm aware of that, but I'm going to be planting like bushes since it's going to be like a micro forest. Sure. Uh, you know, perennial. So, uh, you know, little bitty swales are going in. So I'm not against them by any stretch of the imagination, but. Excuse me. Uh, if I can avoid what I've just had to go through the last three or four days, <laughs> you know, with a with a shovel, I mean, you know, that's a young man's game. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, and it felt good to get out there and do it, honestly. But I wouldn't. You know, I've still got probably uh, three or four more days of that in front of me to really wrap this area up, and I will be glad when it's over. It, you know, it takes nice pictures, and I feel good about it when I can post on. Facebook or whatever. Hey, look at you know, look at the swell we dug today and all that. But man, that's a hard day, and it's August, you know. <laughs> but we're trying to get out in front of uh, the 2016 growing season, so you know that's why we're doing that in August. But um, so you know, anytime I can use compost to do what a shovel and a man and all day takes, I'm all for it. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing that I was really kind of taken with. When I started realizing what you were learning from Elaine, it's that you can do so much with so little. So, you know, I'd make compost and, and make compost and make compost and make compost and end up with a couple of yards and then go buy 20 more yards and spread it and it's gone. Uh, yeah. And it may or may not have done much. And then you guys are able to do a hell of a lot more with a hell of a lot less by brewing the compost tea. You kind of talk about how if the compost is optimized, you need less of it. Yeah, definitely. The 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 thing about this is is most people they make compost because a they you know they have to or they think they have to or it's just something you do or you got to add all this stuff into the garden and you're going to have to do it again next year also. But it really should be treated more like a vitamin or a medicine for your soil. You're so sick, and you need to make it healthy, and then you don't keep taking the medicine after. You know, maybe you take some vitamins to support occasionally after that to uh, keep it keep it healthy. So if we start thinking about our compost like a medicine to get on and then to get back off of, um, it's a, and and that's you know not entirely true because you're not going to go to zero compost making, but it it requires so much less both because um, a lot of times. When uh, people need to add compost to like large, broad acreage, you're talking about uh, you know a ton or two tons per acre, and that you know that's an 
an unimaginable amount of compost for me, whereas you can just make a four-foot-high, four-foot-wide pile and then use uh, two, well, between one and five gallons of compost tea per acre. And how much compost does it take to to make uh, five gallons of compost tea if if you've got good compost? I I have to look at my chart. I'm pretty sure it's like one pound or (laughs) three pounds, three pounds of compost. Yeah, so, you know, first of all, you don't have to make it as much to begin with, and then you have to make even less over time as you get your soil balanced. So, you know, we're, it's because I've, I'm, and even at Permaethos, we've made these big, humongous, they were like six foot around and yeah. six foot high piles, and there were six to eight of them at a time, and it took all the woofers and Jesse and I out there, you know, a couple of hours to go flip that stuff every day. And it was just an insane amount of work, you know. So if you can reduce the amount, now I guess there might be a argument. Now we, I hadn't learned what I know now, so <laughs> we didn't maximize it and turn it into compost tea because that would have been more than enough for the entire property. Yeah, that assumes but, that we were we were ending up with an optimized compost, though, right? I mean, I think yeah. that I've learned enough from you peripherally now to understand that a lot of things go wrong, and I. It's it's a hard thing to explain to people because they're like, well, I put it on my plants and they grow. It works. Well, yeah, but it may not be working to the optimum level. And it and you're gonna it, it's hard to get it's hard to get past that for people that like me that have been making compost our whole lives. That yeah, yeah well, uh, my compost pile got up to 180 degrees. Yeah, well, stupid. That's bad, right? That's <laughs> that's that's not good. That's why your compost has this dusty white shit all over it. And, and that's why your brassias do really good, and you're killing your tomatoes. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 really hard to get past that, I guess. And it's a lot. I think the other thing is like, so you need to be able to do a lot with a little if you're doing urban stuff because you don't produce enough waste on a, you know a, a small urban homestead, a half acre or less, to be making five and six yards of compost a year. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like you said, if the compost gets up that hot, well, if you want to grow your brassicas and kale and coal crops, you're in good you're in good shape, but everything else, and not so much. And the other thing is, if you balance it and make it right, you don't have to turn it every day or every other day for X amount of days. You shouldn't have to turn it. It's uh, five times. If, if you make compost legally to be sold, you have to turn it five times within 15 days. But for home use, if you're dealing with a quantity you can manage, really three times is the minimum amount you have to turn it to consider it safe. Now, I haven't actually achieved compost. I only have to turn three times yet. Mm. I'm getting closer, though, you know. But, you know, three to five times, um, you know, seven times, and you should be good. And you're you're going to be flipping it based on the temperature of the compost, not because it's day three. Got you. You know, so, I think that's a big thing, right, is to go, okay, it's hot enough, let's turn it now. And right. and I guess the way that you get to a point where you're turning it less is you get to a temperature, you maintain the temperature, but the temperature stops climbing, and that tells you I don't have to turn this for longer, right? Is that accurate? Uh, well, kind of. What you're, you need to achieve, you know, you know this, that uh, compost is going to be – uh, hotter in the center than it is on the outside. So you've got different temperatures throughout the compost pile. And what you need to do 
is you need to achieve the hot enough temperature in the center to kill uh, human pathogens, plant pathogens, and uh, weed seeds. Um, and then you've got to flip the compost so that all of the compost gets its turn in the center of that pile. And then by balancing it, uh, it won't stay hot or it won't keep going. So when you flip it, it's going to go down a little bit in temperature, but then it'll shoot right back up. Mm-hmm. So you want to get the balance correct so that it doesn't just keep shooting back up over and over and over and over again. Because every day at Permethos, we'd go out there, you know, on flipping day, stick the thermometer in, and it'd be up over 160 again. You know, so it wasn't too hot, but it was just, it's because there was so much nitrogen in there. Mm. that You know, so if you get the right balance of your compost um, ingredients, then you're going to have to turn You're going to get everything up above the temperature that needs to to be safe, and then it'll trail off you know, back down below those temperatures. And as long as it's aerobic and stays uh, moist as a good, you know, moisture, then you don't have to do anything, which is fantastic, you know. <laughs> the less work, the better. Well, I mean, the reason I'm asking this, I've never achieved, you know, a yard of compost with three turns myself. And I'm just wondering, how how would I know that, okay, I don't have to turn this again? And, and like, w- you know, what does that look like, three, three turns? It just doesn't I, – I don't get it, I guess. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, it, but three, I just, I, I can't get my head around, you know, uh, a yard of compost made with three turns. Well, like I said, I haven't, I have yet to actually achieve that myself. I'm still shooting for that goal, but I, you know, she says it can be done, and okay, um, I haven't caught her in a lie yet. You know, usually she can back up whatever she says with absolute factual, you know, peer-reviewed science. So, the, uh, um, it's just about getting the the mixture right and the temperature right and um how you know is well the, the three turns is basically if you're confident that all of your compost has made made it to the center of the pile okay and spent you know the right amount of time at that temperature but if um you know once you once you're confident that all the all the compost has made it to the center then you basically you don't have to flip it unless it dries out too much or gets too hot. Gotcha. Gotcha. What are some of the biggest mistakes people make? I mean, we kind of talked about letting stuff get too hot. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. People get really proud of how hot their compost is, but um, it, it, it can be a problem. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, yeah, the temperature is a big one. I haven't... Actually, I I haven't seen this myself, but I, I mentioned it to somebody at Permit Ethos. I gave a talk on soils, and one of the people in the audience—I don't remember his name. I'm sorry, but uh, uh, we talked about how if the ignition temperature of alcohol is like 180 degrees, and if you build compost that goes anaerobic, mm. it's producing alcohols in there. And so, if you have alcohol and temperature, and you go to flip your pile, you know you're adding oxygen. Well, you've got ignition. You know, you can blow, you know, blow something up. I don't know how common that is, but you know, like I said, I've never seen it. But then one of the guys in the audience was like, "Oh yeah, my, my you know, my cousin burned his house down." Or something. I don't remember what he said, but basically wow. there was a fire. There was a fire because the compost got so hot, and then they flipped it, and you know, when they added the oxygen, it exploded. So that's you know. That's not going to keep me up at night, but it's something to be aware of, I suppose. I guess that's the extreme potential, but I guess it's the same yeah. thing I talked about with uh, one time, you know, I'm talking about using linseed oil to, to take care of tools, and 
you know, my shop teacher always told me that that's, you know, a rag can just burst into flames, and that's why you got to put it in a little metal can. And, you know, I've always done that, but I never really, really believed it. You know, it right. seemed like a, like, yeah, sure, it can happen. And, you know, one day I don't remember, I think I was rubbing down some shovels or something, the handles with it, and I, fortunately, the pool we had, it was an above-ground pool, but the frame was aluminum instead of plastic, and I wasn't really thinking, I set the rag up there, and it was in the direct sunlight. And, I mean, it was probably 10 minutes, I didn't think about it, turn around, and the rag was just smoldered into ash. And I was like, <laughs> I feel like Beavis, or Butthead, going, oh, it really does happen, you know? I mean, so that's one of those types of things, like, it may not happen a lot, but I guess it would be a good idea that it not happen ever for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And... <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I didn't, I, I mean, I guess I believed it. I just didn't ever, I didn't well, it, it'll never happen to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. until you actually hear somebody that knows of somebody that it happened to. It's yeah. like, oh, this is, you know, wow, okay. This, this, <laughs> but, uh, this really does happen. Uh, yeah. Which I think, a lot, my, my pop culture memory from the early 90s is when Butthead accidentally stabbed Beavis in the eye with a pencil. That's where that is from. <laughs> You know, I watch a lot of shows, but I don't have a lot of memories of them. Uh, I, must have, uh, I must have really been there. There's there's another thing I think that's pretty, pretty common, too, you can talk about. And a lot of people don't even think it's a problem, but it is, and that is having the compost go anaerobic. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're breeding disease, basically. It's, you know, it's just rotting organic material. That's not compost. <laughs> you know, compost, we got to kind of define what compost is, I suppose, to really do that. But, you know, compost... Is really more about the micro, the microbiology in the soil than the actual organic matter. I mean, the organic matter is useful and helpful, and the nutrients that haven't off-gassed, as Paul Wheaton, I'm sure, would <laughs> go overboard with. Um, it's you know the the purpose of the compost, you know, should be to get the biology back in the soil to do the work for you. But so if you go anaerobic, you may, I mean, you may not do anything real bad but you're not doing anybody any favors or your garden or your land any favors by putting out you know anaerobic compost because you're just inoculating your whole property with the bad guys and so they uh when the conditions are good they go dormant and they cyst up and they just sit there and wait for years and for the conditions to be right for them to thrive again so you may not you know, in 10 years from now, something goes wrong over in this part of your property, you're not going to know or remember that, oh, yeah, back in 2013 or, what is this, 2015, I put some bad compost over there. Mm. You might so. not even know you did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I put compost there. I don't know what the problem is. I mean, I, I think that, that that's definitely one of the things. I think the other thing that happens, and I don't think this happens to people that, have like understood, you know, store up your materials, get everything ready, make your pile. But I think probably a lot of people that are home composters just keep adding stuff to the pile. Like, you know, I think Lawton calls it like trying to add batter to the cake when it's halfway baked. I think that's probably another thing that happens to a lot of small, you know, homesteaders. Yeah, when you're making your compost, if it at any point drops below 131, you you pretty much need to start over, even if you haven't added anything new. Mm. But 
So we got to keep our we got to let our compost get up hot enough that it stays above 131. So the you know you start the process of moving stuff through that heat center. You definitely don't want to introduce new material. I mean, you don't like you got to you know, you want to be things like if you have two compost piles going, you don't want to flip the newer compost pile and then go introduce that pitchfork into the older compost pile. Mm. You know, so there's a little bit of scientific method stuff that I never would have thought of. But, you know, that's a big one is not introducing new stuff into a pile that's already in progress. Where, where, do, where do you and Elaine come down on um, worm composting? Because I think for a lot of small, you know, backyard homesteader types, that, that makes a lot of sense because they're constantly producing a small amount of waste. And worms are yeah. for getting rid of that. And worm, if your worm bin goes anaerobic, you'll know because your worms are dead. Right, so you, yeah. you're not going to produce anaerobic worm castings. It's not. It's not. It doesn't mean you can't make them go anaerobic. But if you produce anaerobics in your worm bin, you get dead worms. So we know we've got non-anaerobic, you know, stuff that comes from worms. Is it as good? Is it better? Is it just different than when we're making compost in a in a more, let's say, designed by man uh, method? Oh, it's absolutely fantastic stuff. There's uh, plenty. There's, you know, some worm compost stuff in the the course. And okay. um, the only thing she really pointed out was that the compost tea that comes out of the bottom, it's its only real value is it's better to go pour it on your plants than to throw it away. You're not really – people make a lot more out of the – and that's probably got some worm composters listening a little riled up, so I don't mean to – to you know, inside a riot amongst the worm composters, but the value is in the casings, not so much the the tea that drains off out of the bottom of the worm composting bin. You know, so there's I, I you know she's looked at enough of it through the microscope to be able to just say, hey, you know, I've looked at it, I see you can't hide it from science. Mm. You know, so I'm sure there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that you pour this. Uh, worm casing or worm tea on the plant and they thrive and you know you're not doing anything bad like I said if the, if the uh, worm compost bin hasn't gone anaerobic there's no reason that it should be bad but it's just not where the value is the value is going to be in the casings and then if you make tea with that you know or add some of it to your compost when you're making your compost tea brew you know you're actually breeding the biology at that point, so that's when you're getting the numbers up of the biology. So, uh, but there's a uh, quite a bit in it. She's definitely for composting, and I actually I, I run a uh, a little. It's not the 360, but it's the other one that's basically the same thing. Uh, kitchen worm composting bin. Got it in the house. It doesn't stink. You know, it doesn't um, attract a lot of uh, pests. Uh, we haven't had any trouble with it, and believe me, if there was an issue, my wife would, you know, I'd know. <laughs> gotcha. I got one strike, and then it's out of here. <laughs> how how can people, let's say, integrate this type of thing into, you know, uh, an already ongoing homestead or farming operation, and maybe people that don't think they need it to do, too, because they say, well, everything grows here. Well, maybe it's not growing as good as it could. Yeah, uh, you know, along with, like, all the, everybody – what people say about the uh, permaculture, you know, you kind of, you got to have a whole system design. And there's a lot of people, I think, that do compost, but they don't really think anything of it. That's just, we put all our organic matter over here, and it happens, and then we put it all out on the farm. 
So this system can be integrated as easily as that. You're not, you don't have to quit your day job to be able to do this stuff. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, there's a lot of information to have and to understand, but none of it's really super complicated. And it should, uh, in time, you know, it shouldn't be any more work than you're doing now with compost, and it should become less work over time. So if you integrate this into your already, you know, homesteading or uh, micro farming or whatever, you know, you got backyard gardens, whatever you got going on, it shouldn't, it should just seamlessly flow in so that when you have your system down, it's just part of your day and, and you know, you'll roll right on through. And like I said, it should get much easier over time because you'll have to produce less and less of it over time until once, and, you know, I didn't bring it up earlier, but uh, when you mentioned the worm composting, once you get your soil fixed, you may only need to just use the worm composting bin just to, uh, you know, kind of give a vitamin boost to your soil from time to time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that, like, one of the things you'll need to understand, too, is, like, there's there's a lot of opportunity with this in, uh, you know, consulting or service providing as well for people that learn this stuff because this isn't just for growing, you know, bigger potatoes, tomatoes, and peppers or bigger trees to produce chestnuts. This is universally applicable. You were explaining to me how, you know, this can replace your true green chemlon service with, with no chemicals. And the person that just wants green grass that doesn't want, you know, chickens and pigs and, and, and fruit trees and gardens, that this type of service still would work for them. Yeah, absolutely. I had uh, started this. I found one uh, property I was able to do in an HOA. I mean, I wanted to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum because I'm working on my uh, homestead. Uh, it's not. I don't. I don't, wouldn't call it a farm. It's like 50 acres, but it's not arable land like that. So I've got you know the, the homestead application, and then to go do uh, someone's yard. I've got, you know, a yard that I'm applying on and I didn't get started early enough in the fall, you know, in the fall of last year. So, uh, you know, I I started this spring working with them and have kept the lawn alive basically because without their true green service or Kimlon green service, he said in uh July and August the the yard was just always dead and you know, they just had to come keep fertilizing and keep adding whatever it is they do to uh, uh, keep the yard alive, but they, they've been coming for five years and made absolutely no progress. <laughs> you know, if, if we don't do something to fix this lawn, it'll need the Kim Lawn Service every bit next as much next year as it did this year and last year. So, you know, it's just another treadmill service of not fixing it, for, you know, the first time. So, like I said, I didn't get started in this last fall to get the compost stored properly so that the compost... Uh, the diversity in life will increase for um, up to six, mo- six months is when it peaks. And then it will hold that diversity and slowly decline over two years. So if you store compost in the fall when everything's going gangbusters and then let the diversity sit there and, and increase over the winter, then when you come out first thing in spring, you're inoculating with something that no amount of money can buy. Mm. You know, it's, it's site-specific to you. And it's just, it's been made, you know, perfectly under your con- controlled circumstances. And then it's been left to age for the right amount of time. So you're getting out there the very first of spring and inoculating with exactly what your land needs when it needs it at the very beginning. So hopefully you're not going to get the uh, pesticide, you know, the 
parasites and diseases aren't even going to get a chance to get a foothold and occur. So it's it, it in in that way it's kind of a permaculture principle. So if if you have a, a garden and you surround it with rocks and then you don't plant like something that you would want like trailing thyme or sweet alyssum or something to cover those rocks since they are hard surface since they infiltrate water since they accumulate organic matter weeds are going to grow up the rocks so you have to put something in their play in that place or nature pouring a vacuum will fill it so if we go in and we inoculate the land with these really high quality biological organisms that we do want there they take up residence and reduce the potential for the the bad guys as Elaine always calls them to to even have a space to exist absolutely yeah the good guys will good guys and and with an, and enough population will always win out so you know if we don't put a parking space there for the bad guy he won't park there got you got you and i mean so you've kind of put all this stuff. It's it's not ready yet, but you you have a course starting this fall for people that you, that you've taken what you've learned from Elaine and what you've learned from your applications and 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 formatted that so that people can learn to do this for themselves, learn to provide as a service, what have you. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, we've got the course, and believe it or not, fall's coming <laughs> a yeah. lot quicker than you think. <laughs> it's funny how the time flies, but uh, we've got a course that we're starting and like I, I just said a minute ago it's really important to get this compost you know to get this information out and get the compost made and get it set and stored for the winter so that we have six months old compost when we start in the spring at the end of March or beginning of April or whatever that is for people for me it's April 15th I think it's the last frost date but anyway um, so we're trying to get this course out in a hurry so that people can participate in this year so that they can take advantage in uh, the growing season of 2016. I really didn't want to hold off and, and run it out of sequence like that because you're not going to see, if you start like I did with that lawn, um, you're not going to see the benefits of that till the end of next year mm. or, well, dur during next year. You know, even though I, I went over and kept his lawn alive for him, it was really just a stopgap to... Uh, get a handle on the problems and not let it get any worse. But the explosion of growth and it being fixed will happen next year because I didn't have six-month-old compost that I made correctly to start with this season. So we're, we're pushing this out kind of in a hurry as far as um, being able to get with you and get on the show. But I'm, I'm working with Permaethos. Uh, the course is going to be at Permaethos or at the permaethos.com site. And uh, we're working with people who want to learn all these methods. I've got everything you need to know in the course. And then actually as a bonus course, or two bonus courses, one of them is a, a worm composting, how to transition into that. And the second comp one is the microscope work. Because some people may decide that they don't want to buy a 350 dollar microscope because it sounds really awesome until you spend 10 minutes behind a microscope and go yeah that was fun i wish i hadn't spent 350 dollars because i don't <laughs> want to do that anymore you know? so for people who want to use the microscope uh i have the training available after this course but the main bulk of the course is understanding everything you need to know to build your compost and um you know get everything 
optimum imbalance. And then well, the reason it's 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 not just a course, it's a consultancy, is because we're going to be doing soil samples for everybody that takes the class. So you're not just, you know, you take this class, you're not just getting a certificate hang on your wall. You're getting your backyard design, you know, fixed. You'll be fixed, you know, that, that'll be your graduation is whatever property you decide to work with will be, you know, uh, hopefully a new Eden. You know, you'll have your backyard Eden. So what you're saying is, as uh, is, is part of if I took your course, then I would actually send you soil samples for you to do the analysis of, and you're going to tell me what's going on. Is that is that basically what you're saying there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're going to be doing uh, one soil sample a month for every student. Wow. Um, our con- consultancy. You know. Well, it's not okay. There's not much to do in the winter time, so we're going to race through fall here. Yeah. And then we're going to shut down the second week of November. We'll shut it down, and then we'll pick back up. Um, I have to look at my calendar. I don't know if it was. I think it was like March fifteenth, maybe. Okay. You know, something like that. So we're gonna we're gonna go all the way up until winter. You know, there's the holidays and there's nothing going on. The biology all goes to sleep. It goes dormant for the winter. You know, all that stuff. Um, so we're gonna be running the classes and the soil samples and then getting everybody to. Um, yeah, March first is when we kick back off. So uh, we're going to get everybody and get them to their compost stored um, with soil samples so that they know they're storing something worth storing. And then um, March 1st, we'll pick it back up. We'll start doing samples, start waking everything up, and start um, getting the compost tea out, uh, maybe even a little bit before the first fr- the last frost happens, uh, getting everybody's property inoculated, you know, depending on what they're working on. And so we've... Uh, We've designed the course so that you have actionable information when you need it, and then we kind of go back in between all that and fill all the holes in with the science and the stuff you need to know to make good decisions. Um, kind of like how you say, you know, people get paralyzed when they're making chicken soup and they're missing one ingredient. Mm-hmm. Well, we understand, you know, that that we're not operating in a frictionless environment. So having all this information, you're able to make the smartest decisions you can. You know, when when you don't have everything just perfect. And, and how will it work? So let's say I was your student. I'm taking this class. Um, are these going to be like live seminars? If I miss one, am I going to be able to view it later? I mean, how how's that going to work? Because this is not going to be like Nick's course where it's just, you know, here's a list of videos. You watch the videos. You learn from them. You go do it or you don't. This is going to be much more instructor-led, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, It's um, they're going to be posted on the Permanent Ethos website like that. Now, you know, I didn't, um, I, I, for me, the information is a lot more, well, I don't know how to say this. <laughs> uh, the information is what's important. So I didn't spend any time on big production. Like our PVC looks fantastic, mm-hmm. and it was shot by a true professional with thousands of dollars worth of equipment. You know, I have my laptop, and I invested $40 in an audio uh, program. You know, so... <laughs> You know, it's it's all about transferring information. So it kind of looks like uh, uh, webinars, okay. I guess is the easiest way to say it. It looks like a presentation of um, – uh, there might be some videos inside the presentations as we move forward because I'm going to be showing the progress on this farm and at uh, Elijah Springs okay. going through, you know, what we're doing there. So it's basically – it's uh, it's just going to be like watching a uh, a webinar. Like a screen uh, flow. And then – like a PowerPoint, mm-hmm. basically, like a like an yeah, instructor-led yeah, yeah. PowerPoint. Okay. And then it'll also um, 
there's lots of uh, Q&A, like people can email in their questions, and then the, uh, some of the, I think every third one is going to be a microscope slide review class and Q&A, okay. where I'll, show, I'll start showing the microscope slides, and people can start getting a feel for whether they really want to buy a microscope and do this themselves, which I hope they do, or if they don't, then, you know, they can still learn everything they need to do, and there's lots of uh, um, Ingham-approved you can send the soil sample to us, and we'll do it. Uh, there's other labs, you know, that do this also. But, you know, so you kind of got your pick there. But it's basically, it's it's just, a, a you know, webinars with the information needed. Who, who is this really for? I mean, like, who's the ideal student? What, what student maybe is this not really a good op option for? Well, I've got, okay, so I've, I've taken, I've got the uh, Life in the Soil class certification, the compost certification, the compost tea and compost um, extract certification, and the microscope certification. So I can deal with everybody from backyard gardeners up to, um, I would say, probably like homesteaders in my situation where you might be just getting into the CSA market or farmer's market or something like that. Um, I'm still being certified. There's another year-long process to deal with big con commercial industrial farmers that want to go back to a more natural system so basically if you have a piece of equipment on your farm that costs more than most people's houses uh, i'm we're, we're not there yet i got with you. this course you know but for pretty much everybody else if you're not you know solely dependent on making your mortgage payment you know and you can't because and it's not that i'm scared that you won't it's just this is a lot to switch over in one year you know mm. so you know be on you know for them to understand, maybe you take a little section of your property and try this and incorporate it in. But, you know, for me to, to deal with commercial applications, I've, I've still got some uh, training to do on that. Got you. Got you. So it sounds like it's for pretty much everybody except the the commercial farmer running a 1,000 acres of, of soy that wants to become an all-organic operation in one year. That that's, that's That's not where we're at, but... The homesteader, the farmsteader, the the part timer, the urban homesteader, the backyard farmer, all of that type of stuff. This this is a good fit for. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm, I mean, I really want to get this out and you know do my part to fight the Monsantos and Conagras and you know all those big businesses that we we love and support so much because we have no other choice. You know, I, so I, you know. And I was talking to you, I think that there's, like, opportunity here for people that do this right. And, and you know, I'm not going to say you're going to be able to, you know, take this course and six months into it, be in business, doing stuff. But I think that, I mean, just on lawn care alone, uh, yeah. especially if you live in an urban environment, if your your yard looks beautiful and you're not having a truck come spray it every, you know, six days, uh, you know, uh, and you know, you don't have chemical smell coming out of it. Uh, that's a pretty big, you know, uh, advertisement so that you can at least try to maybe get some initial local business. And I think it could, I think lawn care alone is a, and I don't think people realize how big that business is. And I think it's, yeah, look. most people on our, they listen to this show, they don't care about their lawn that way, right? So right. they don't realize how many people do. And it's a huge business, isn't it? Oh man, go look at Craigslist if you want to see it. And lawn care, <laughs> there's pages of them. But yeah, so I mean, I think most of these services like spray about five times a year and charge a hundred bucks a pop, roughly. So 
you know, I think if you're bringing, you know, at this point, normally organic and, you know, specialized stuff costs more. Sure. So, you know, how many of those yards you got to pick up to pay for your summer? You know, if, if that's, but so it, it should, yeah, it should, uh, prove to be a, a good business plan, which is, I think the consultancy part of this course makes it so much more important because you come out of it, you've got your experience, you know, you, you know, your example of what it is you can do is your, it's your yard. You know, you don't have to go out and find a client and convince them to try some whacked out weirdo hippie voodoo thing that they've never heard of and then wait a year to actually accomplish it, you know. And then go into business. You'll just all right, my yard fixed. It looks beautiful. Here's what I can do for your yard. Yeah, and, and I think the business. other thing is it looks the same to them. Only they know it's 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 natural. It's organic. Whatever words you want to use, because right. somebody comes out, shakes their hand, gives them a price, sprays stuff on their lawn. Their lawn gets better. They pay the bill. That means it to to a to a customer. They don't want. They don't really want to know the ins and outs. They don't want to take your course for six months. They just want to know the you know the basic bullet points: why it works, how it works, what it does, what the results have been elsewhere, and that their grass is going to be green when their neighbor's grass is all scraggly, full of crabgrass and brown. That that's yeah, what they want to know. And I, I think this is also very regional. Like you talked about, like the indigenous microorganisms and stuff like that. That and and the you know the certain. It, this is hard to get into because I know you've learned this from, from from Elaine, as I have from listening to a couple of her talks. Like, there's so much in the soil that we don't even know what it is. The the, the quantity, the number of species and subspecies. So the the different ratios, the different subspecies and stuff. In my, that would be in a healthy, perfectly balanced environment on my property are different here in Texas than they would be for you in Tennessee. So for the person that's trying to do this as a consultancy or as a service, they're going to naturally have a perfect product for their region, I guess, you know. And when I say region, like the, the region you would service. I'm not talking about like 25% of the United States. I'm, an individual yeah. service person is not going to service 25% of the United States. Right. The, play, the What you can reasonably drive to in four hours or less on the outskirt, I imagine. Hell, Joe Southern doesn't even go more than four hours out away from his farm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And you never have to use the word permaculture, <laughs> like you were saying. You know, you can yeah. go up and talk to them like business people. Well, see, I, 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 when I say that, people cringe because I put so much effort into teaching permaculture and making it better known, and I want it to be better known. But when it comes to selling a service, like I don't want to use the word permaculture unless I know the people I'm talking to know what it means. It, yeah. It's not because I don't like permaculture, not because I don't think permaculture is the best design science there is, but because if I use something in my top-line sales or marketing that you don't understand, well, I might as well just say hippity-bippity shit, right? I might <laughs> we use hippity-bippity shit on your lawn. And then people are like, well, I don't know what that is, and it, it sounds kind of weird, right? So, right, yeah. when, you know, so we use all natural methods of enhancing the, the fullness, lushness, and greenness of your lawn – Okay, I understand every word you just said. I may not believe you, but at least I understand it. Now all you have to do is make me believe you. But if I yeah, and your kids, throw a word and your kids haven't heard before, I have to now spend half an hour educating you to what that word means. Right. And a word like permaculture, right? How, how every time you hear an interview with a permaculture say, "How do you define permacultures?" Every damn one of us defines it differently. <laughs> so it's a, it's a terrible marketing word. I, I, that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, but you know, one thing you can say and um, is you know you give them the business spiel and oh, and by the way, your kids can come out barefoot and play on the yard while I'm doing it. Never mind. You know, after I'm done doing it. Yeah, know? they'll never be on an episode of uh, Emergency ER or Monsters Inside of Me after we do this either. <laughs> Yeah, they'll probably be healthier. You know, these are all the we're, we're inundated with my you know, microbiology. So, so what? Know, if, go ahead. No, I don't. I just basically, it's you know, you're inoculating yourself. You know, if you know you're down there working in the comp, you're pretty much inoculating yourself with whatever it is you surround yourself all day long. Anyway, so you know, if you're down there working with the best compost that can be made with all the scientifically beneficial, you know, microbes that's you know, I'm not a doctor, but it can't be bad for you. Yeah, I, I want to sort of kind of throw something out for people that wonder, like, how well does this really work? I remember I watched Elaine give one of her presentations, and I was thinking, okay, this is just compost. And, and honestly, I was thinking on some level, some of this is some bullshit. Um, and then she showed a project she worked on uh, in Las Vegas for a hotel that was just the lawn. And that actually impressed me more than the organic farm. And this is why. The organic farmer already knows how to at least get a crop or he'd be out of business, right? Yeah, right. The hotel would spray paint the grass freaking green as long as it would work, right? They don't really know anything, especially about right. doing things naturally. So she can go into you know the lawn, and I don't remember. It was a pretty big hotel. I think it was on the Strip. And she showed the difference in this lawn over two seasons, and... I was completely blown away. I'm like, well, if it works in Las Vegas on the Strip, right? (laughs) Some drunk hippie vomits on it every other day and, you know, whatever. Uh, And it's hot as blazes. They get almost no rain. And she was, she showed like the irrigation and like they were like, it was like this huge bar chart that started out this huge bar and it just plummeted. And the amount of irrigation went down to like, I I didn't think you could keep something alive like that in Vegas. So I, I know this stuff works. And I, I know that it's maybe a little bit hard for the person that's not yet educated to it to understand it, but it also does make sense that we want that biology in the ground to be angled towards success versus failure. And a lot of what we're doing today is, is either not making that happen or actually swinging us the other way. Like, I've always been a big fan of molasses, right? Feed the soil mm-hmm. organisms. And I'm like, why the hell does Elaine say not to do that? And you're like, well, well until you know what's in your property – if you have a bunch yeah. of bad shit there and you throw sugar down, you, you you just fed all the evil guys. Yeah. Well, plus you're probably almost everybody has bacteria, whether they have enough or not. I mean, you've got more bacteria than fungi. When probably <laughs> what you need is more fungi. So if you're feeding the bacteria when you don't have enough fungi, you're exacerbating the problem. Hmm. Yeah. To some degree, but yeah, also you're feeding bad guys <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if that's what you got. Yeah, it's like having piranha and throwing them a whole bunch, you know, a couple bags of chicken heads, and then going, "Why do I have more piranha now?" Well, because you, you fed them, you've been <laughs> right, right. them. They're migrating up river to your raft while you sink, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So this course, Mike, uh, when, when when is it going to be launched? When are people going to be able to sign up for it? What have you? Because I know we're not quite there yet. Well, we're pretty close, actually. Um, August 29th is when okay. we want to launch the uh, site for founding members in Class 01. Um, give them first crack at it with a discount. And then uh, I think August 30th, that's a Saturday. And the following Monday, open up TS member, TSP members. And then I think the Wednesday after that will be everybody. Um, 
uh, you know, for, for the retail. And then we, since it's so close, because that's, what is that? You know, Two and a half the end of next week. Yeah. Yeah, well, this will be on, when is this on? Today. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, like 30 minutes from the time we hang up, well, it'll be on. Oh, okay. Uh, well, that gives a little more time. So, yeah, um, um, August 29th is two week, two and a half weeks away. Um, and uh, But still, that's kind of tight to throw this out there. So uh, I talked with uh, the Kevin and you guys at Permit Ethos, and we got a payment plan worked out. And that will be open on September 5th, which is kind of a, our yeah, 5th through 12th, I think, which is the class that will be running. So it's kind of a late sign-up thing. But it shouldn't be that hard to catch up. Okay, and and I think we one thing we need to make clear with this is this is a limited number of students, and it's not you know a sales thing or whatever, and it's a fairly small number uh, compared to some other things we've done. Simply because this is instructor led, you are providing soil analysis and things like that, so you can only take so many students. So what are, what what is the headcount we decided we're going to limit this to? Um. Well, the out the outside edge is about 400. Okay. Because that'll mean we'll have to produce, we'll have to provide, we'll have to do 100 soil samples a week, which is you know about 20 a day, and you know, and I do I am working with a, a partner. Um, I actually got three partners working on this farm now, but I got one partner helping me, which was how we were able to bump it up to that because. Lord knows if I don't provide the mighty Spearco's customers with good service, what will happen to me? <laughs> but, I mean, I, I'm just trying to make the point that, like, this is not, you know, just a, a whole series of downloads and, and you're on your own. This is an ongoing instructor-led thing and, and, a, and, and getting data points, you know, every month on your individual progress from actual right. analysis. So that that requires us not – to limit the the number of students, not just so we can sell more, but so that we can actually deliver what we promised. And then I guess the other side of it is, to be bluntly honest with the audience, we have to have a, a significant, you know, enough students participate, or we can't we can't do it. We can't do this with five students or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, I'm gonna have to um, exit my. I'm driving part time still in the in the big truck, which is why I brought on some partners to help work the farm. But I can't effectively do this long distance, creating the content and stuff, still driving the truck. So I'm gonna have to get out of the truck to do that. But um, uh, we're we're working. Uh, this is this is really just a consultancy. We call it a class because what we're doing is teaching you to do it for yourself. It's not a treadmill like you know thing. So, but yeah, it's full contact consultancy with me. So I'll you know I'll be dealing with each of the the customers or students, however you want to think of it, um, on an individual basis, you know, in contact with, working on your soul, no understanding your program and what you're trying to do. And so that's a lot of people to deal with. So that's really why we put the cap on. And um, I think the minimum we were able to do is 50. If we if we didn't have 50 interested people, I mean, your your listenership is, what, about 130,000 yeah. a day now? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if 50 people aren't interested, we'll probably have to evaluate whether this is a reasonable business model to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe we didn't do enough pre-marketing of it because we, we really haven't. So hopefully this will give people a good lift toward it today. But we'll have more 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 information coming about the course all in the next couple of weeks as we lead up to, to the launch of it. But I really want to encourage people to take advantage of, of this opportunity because, I mean, 
if you wanted to go do what Mike just spent the last year of his life doing, what did what was the cost of the total doing it that way with Elaine? Um, well, I've, I've still got another year to go, but the total cost is uh, I think six sixty five hundred or six. Well, yeah, at least sixty five hundred if you count the microscope. I'm not sure. Plus all the equipment, so that's why I'm yeah. stuttering or stumbling around. But it, you know, six grand or sixty five hundred just for the course. Yeah, and 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 we're going to be making this available to people. Let's say just the the, the discounted price to class zero one and the the founders are going to have a price of a thousand dollars, thousand bucks, ninety nine ninety nine, nine hundred seven dollars plus three dollars postage and handling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, so, we're talking about a sixth of the of the cost, and you've tried to to not really strip it down, I guess, but to. To, to actually extrapolate into more layman's terms exactly what people need to know to be able to make this work for themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, it's important to point out I'm not just redistributing Dr. Ingham's material. I'm What I've done is I've took her course to uh, fill in the holes of what it is I didn't know, and, you know, obviously I've learned a ton of stuff from her, but we're working on, you know, Jeff Lawton, what we've learned from Jeff Lawton over the years, um, through every compost and soil book I've get my hands on over the last year. Um, of course, yeah, Dr. Ingham's playing a big part and filling in the science part of it for us. So, you know, it's it's kind of geared more towards um, us. I don't know how to say it, but we people, because, you know, Dr. Ingham's class is like a collegiate-level science class. Mm-hmm. and. It's it's you got to really really want that information I think to get to and if anybody you know yeah, yeah you know she's you know got a wonderful program for the scientific minded you know but I'm I'm trying to bring it down to our and that's what she tried to do she's so smart that she really tried to bring it down so that the rest of us mere mortals could understand it and to some extent she was successful but I think I've been able to. Um, Take what we did at Perma Ethos and take what Jeff Lawton taught us and fill in some of the gaps with what she's done to really build a whole system that will work for, you know, our who you know, our community. Yep. Yep. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for being on the air with us today and I wanna I wanna tell you again, I am I'm very proud of the, the work you did to get through those courses because they're they're quite advanced and, and I've been really impressed by how well you've done uh, in, in passing them and, and the dedication it took to get through them because part of why I, I was I'll, I'll be honest I was a little bit skeptical about sponsoring you into that because I was like I couldn't do it um, and, and and not because I'm not smart enough to do it because I'm like I I could I didn't I don't I'm like I don't want it bad enough to deal with you know hours and hours of this you know nematologist yeah. level stuff I you know and and you know it, it it did take a lot for you to get through that and. When I saw you kind of lay it out with PowerPoint and present it up at Perma Ethos, it became evident how well you've taken the information in and how well you've been able to to translate it into something that people can actually listen to, care about, be engaged with, and make practical for application. So uh, I, I, I'd like to thank you for the effort that took because I know it wasn't just as simple as take the courses, check off the boxes, and be done with it because I listened to her probably four or five hours of her stuff not at that level at all, and there were parts of it that I was just like, I don't, I don't care anymore. I just, I it's not that I don't believe yeah. you. It's just the format 
And the detail level, and just uh, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. I, I, you don't have to convince me anymore, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so good on you, man, for doing that and for taking the initiative to figure out how to make this then available to everybody else. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You know, I've really learned that the harder I work, the more opportunities I get to take advantage of, and you know, it's it's been a blessing to me and my family. Um, and you know you're right. The science of it, it's it's like the PDM. It can really be like reading sandpaper sometimes. <laughs> so um, I just I'm thankful for the opportunities. I'm thankful I got to spend uh, last year at Perma Ethos or at Elijah Springs. I got so many opportunities to meet and hang out with so many people that um, I was trying to think the other day if I actually have any friends left that aren't heavily involved in this community. You know that I have regular contact with and. I, you know, other than my high school buddies that I still keep in touch with, I think everybody I know and associate with or, you know, all the great people that participated in Perma Ethos and, you know, Permaculture Voices and other people that are on the show. And it's, I'm just really thankful to be a part of this community and get to know all these fantastic people. All right. So real quick, again, when is the, uh, the course going to launch? What's the launch date? Uh, the first launch date for funding members and class of one is August 29th, which is a Saturday. Okay. And, and we will have yeah. more information coming in the next two weeks about the course, the details, the specifics, and what have you. will be available on the Perma Ethos blog. And, of course, I'll be, you know, kind of direct small little brief post directing over to the Perma Ethos blog from the TSP blog. So stay tuned, guys. And, again, Mike, thanks for being with us today on the air. Hey, thank you, Jeff. I'll talk to you soon. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Mike Bertrand helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
revolution.